What in the World language podcast. I'm speaking today with Rhonda Taylor Bullock. Rhonda is originally from Goldston, North Carolina. In 2018, she earned her doctorate at UNC Chapel Hill in the Policy, Leadership, and School Improvement Program. Her research interests are critical race theory, whiteness studies, and white children's racial identity construction and anti-racism. Prior to ending her doctoral program, Dr. Taylor Bullock taught English for almost 10 years at Hillside High School in Durham, North Carolina, where she now resides. Dr. Taylor Bullock is the co-founder and executive director of We Are, which stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education. As a nonprofit, We Are works to equip children, parents, and educators with the knowledge and skills necessary to understand the complexity of racism. We Are uses a three-pronged approach to dismantle systemic racism in education by offering summer camps for children in rising first through fifth grade, workshops for parents, and professional development for educators. Dr. Taylor Bullock is the wife of Dr. Daniel Kelvin Bullock and mother of son Zion and daughter Zayed. Welcome to the show, Dr. Taylor Bullock. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So without any further ado, let's get started. So, Dr. Taylor Bullock, could you speak a bit about your organization, We Are, and your three-pronged approach, perhaps highlighting each of those approaches as they work toward dismantling systemic racism? And what do you hope to achieve through your initiatives? Yeah, so we use a three-pronged approach to dismantle systemic racism in education and beyond. And as you said earlier, by offering um, summer camps for kids in rising first through fifth grade, professional development for educators, and workshops for parents and families. And so we basically provide programming that addresses each of those prongs. Mm -hmm. And so um, let's just start with the children. So we have two camps or two divisions of the camps. We have a week-long camp for children in first through second grade, and then we have a week-long camp for kids in third through fifth grade. Mm. And um, and we'll talk about this a little more, but we use a literacy-based curriculum that helps children think about race and racism in very explicit ways. Mm -hmm. And so at that level, maybe we aren't um, disrupting the system quite yet, mm -hmm. but we are working with children and helping them to develop these healthy racial identities to understand um, race and racism in age-appropriate ways. Mm -hmm. And so they're starting to think about and process the world in ways that are very different from the ways that many of us as adults were raised right, and right. to think about. Mm -hmm. And so we just have specific programming at that age for, for children. And then with educators, we do a much more... Um, more work that's throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So we have several programs that we offer for educators. So for one, we do a Less Taught Racism conference. And um, at that conference, it's annual. We mm -hmm. bring educators together, primarily educators, but we have parents, community members, other um, professionals who come to look at how education intersects uh, with structural racism. Mm. And we hope that folks leave from there inspired, informed, with a desire to learn more and then be disruptive in the systems that they operate in, and, and particularly education, because Absolutely. educators have a direct connection to that system and can be thoughtful about, okay, hey, in my local context, how can I be disruptive here and challenge things? Um, 
we offer professional development for educators in the summer. We do um, a three-day educator training called uh, the Educator Institute, and we bring educators together, again, helping them to better understand racism and education, how they intersect. Mm. And then we encourage educators to come in teams of three because we spend time in the afternoons um, thinking about a specific systemic racial inequality issue in their local context. And then they start to develop a plan to address it when they go back. Um, We're helping teachers develop and think about curriculum by sharing what we've modeled through our summer camps. And so it's just this cycle of involvement with educators. And then with parents, we're pulling them in the loop as well, because we believe having that three-pronged approach Mm -hmm. um, increases the impact that we have. So we do workshops for parents and helping them think about why race-based conversations with kids matter and giving them some tools and entry points to start those conversations Mm -hmm. or then to continue them. I think that's important bringing the parents into the conversation because sometimes they're, they're forgotten, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. in in my experience. Um, So you have a week long summer camp that you just mentioned, right? For the elementary kids and through rising first, second, third through fifth grades. And you also mentioned the literacy-based strategies and hands-on activities um, and those learning experiences through promoting anti-racism. But you state the goals are to foster healthy racial identities in youth, build a historical understanding of race and racism, and to equip families with tools and resources which extend anti-racist practices into the home and community. Um, I'm particularly interested in that last point. What exactly are the tools and resources you use to equip families with, and are those same tools available outside of the CAMP program? You touched on it a little bit in the first question. Um, you know, so could you speak a little bit about those resources and, and how do you use them? What do they look like? Yeah, so for one, we recommend that parents um, look at a text called Racism Explained to My Daughter by Ben Telhar Jaloum. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, the last name. But um, that's one of the first resources that we recommend to um, parents. Okay. That they, um, the first year of the art camp, we used to give them a copy of it. It'd be a used copy. We would get it right, re- right. Re- uh, relatively inexpensively. But at this point, we make it as a recommendation uh-huh. because it's a text to parents to help them think about and hear narratives from other parents raising young children who've brought up issues of race, racism, bigotry, homophobia, um, anti-Semitism. And it's just these parents navigating those conversations and we think that's a great tool for parents to have but in the specific context of the camp every day in our camp we have um, what we call a daily sheet and on that daily sheet we have the um, objectives that we covered that day in the lesson we have um, a little quotable moment that Mm -hmm. the child might have shared or an, an activity they participated in but we try to get like something that child said Um, during the camp that day that the parents can ask them about. And then we have reflective questions for the families Mm -hmm. that are related to the content we covered in that day. Mm -hmm. And so the expectation is that when we put this in um, the children's daily folder, they take it home, that the parents check that, and now they go through it with the kids. And it's better for them um, to have this specific uh, topics laid out for them. Because if you if your child comes home, and you're like, what did you learn about today? Right. You know, and that's really one of the worst questions you can ask right, a kid right. because they're always going to say nothing. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, not always, but many of them of will times. reply. But if yep. you have something specific, oh, I see you all talked about this. Can you tell me more about that? Right. Or can I ask you... Um, 
Also on that sheet, it tells the book that we read that day. Okay. And um, for every child who attends our camp, we give them a copy of the book that we read and it's theirs to keep. Uh-huh. So by the end of the week, they have a home library. Uh-huh. And so the expectation along with that is that now the child takes that book mm-hmm. and shares it with the family that night. They get to become the expert. Mm-hmm. Even if they can read or they cannot read, they've heard the text already that right. day. You can just navigate through the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so now the child is communicating that to the parents or maybe a sibling. That's some of the stories that we get that the child is reading to a, a younger sibling. Right. Um, but also on that paper, there's those reflective questions that a parent can ask. And so now the parent is engaging in dialogue with their child. And it's all related. So it's not like it's coming out of the blue. It's like, we just had these conversations today. And so we get a lot of feedback from parents. So on day two, during the car line and drop off, parents are yelling through the car, Hey, we read those questions or we had a great conversation and, or they're sending us, you know, um, anecdotes through emails just say, Hey, this is working. We had, this is working. This is a conversation that we had. Um, and my child brought this up today. And so they're letting us know that one, (laughs) that they are seeing those sheets, they're reading them. And then they are having those conversations. Right. Um, in their homes. So it's and working. So it's working. It is, they're doing it. And, and sometimes we, some parents are like, well, you know, we've read through these texts. What should we do with them? Can we donate them back to you? And um, uh, should we keep them? And sometimes they will donate them back to us or we'll say, give them to somebody else. Right. Pa- pay it forward. Pay it forward. Pay it forward so that that curriculum is out there. Those books that are helping children still think about circulating. It. They're still circulating. Right. And you're advocating for the program. Advocating. Right. So, and I just wanted to add on that, you know, I don't want to, um, I'm not the only one who's creating this curriculum or even right. who's teaching it. We have a team of people, many of our board members help co-create okay. the curriculum. And then some of the teachers that we hire over the summer, they, um, create the curriculum or they stay on and like, we want to come back next summer. So now they're adding on, um, to the curriculum in that way. And one of the unique things that we, or maybe it may not be unique, but something that we appreciate is that we try to hire, um, educators who are currently in, um, the school systems. And so they're coming in, seeing our curriculum that may be new for them and they take it back into their classrooms. And so, um, and then they're also bringing things it's a direct link and their ideas to us as well. So it's a mm-hmm. really nice cycle that's happening. Yes. So while we may not physically be in the schools, some right. of those teachers who work with us they are taking are. that curriculum, those texts and using them in their classrooms. So have you scaled this up to middle and high school at all? We um, have. We have not. We've gotten a lot. We're getting a lot of requests, and particularly because many children are voluntarily talking about race and racism around middle school age. Like they're becoming more conscious mm-hmm. of it, verbalizing it more, even though younger kids can and do that, but it's more widespread, right? right? Because the children are paying attention to more. And so we're getting a lot of ask about scaling up to there, through middle school and then high school. And we will eventually. Right now, though, our next curriculum project that we'll be working on is creating a, a pre-K kindergarten play-based curriculum. Mm. So we're going to go down first. Okay. Um, so that a more baseline foundational level of learning That's that is happening there. Yeah. After we get that play-based curriculum created, we want to pilot it in a few um, pre-K centers. And so we wouldn't bring the children to us. We'd more like, here's this curriculum. We want to train your staff and how to use it, do it and then just support them as they implement right. it and get some feedback. And so from there, once we get that going, we're going to go to some middle school curriculum and then go to some high school Later. curriculum. Build up to it. And build up to it. Yeah. No, I think it's important to start at the uh, pre-K and elementary level mm-hmm. because it's the foundation, like you right. mentioned. I'm a high school teacher. And... Uh, we can have these conversations in my classroom, and we do, but sometimes there's a, there is a disconnect. 
I'd li- I'd, sometimes I like to think that my students uh, know more about race issues, current race issues, um, than they actually do at times. Um, for example, where I live in Winston-Salem, uh, they're thinking of changing the fairground name from a Dixie Classic Fair to something different to do away with the term Dixie Classic. And I brought that up to my students, and a lot of them didn't even know that that was a conversation. Some of them did, but mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't. So I think the work you're doing starting at, at such a young age hopefully lays that foundation to when they do get to middle and high school, they already are having these conversations or are aware of them. Yeah, so, that's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're getting there. So um, that kind of leads into this next question. How does racism embed itself in our schools and in our systems? Uh, if we move beyond thinking about racism as the good, bad binary, right? Um, how can we begin to see racism in our schools or better yet, in our classrooms? That's to say, how is it manifesting itself? How have you seen it manifest itself? Well, in some ways, um, when racism is systemic and embedded, it's invisible. And it makes it harder for people to name. Absolutely. And to pinpoint. And so especially if that intentionality isn't there, if you aren't intentionally going and looking for how racism is showing up, then it will just manifest and you'll just think it's just the norm, but it's not the norm. And we have to, you know, put that lens on and say, Hey, I'm going to look for how this is showing up so that we can name it, address it and disrupt it. And so some of the ways that it shows up is um, in some of our systems and some of the rules and policies that are implemented in schools. Um, I'm going to think and talk specifically about discipline, Mm. discipline policies, oftentimes, uh, are implemented in a way to disproportionately impact black and brown children. Absolutely. Um, Sometimes educators, our perceptions of student behaviors are impacted by our biases. Mm -hmm. So someone may see a black child with his head down and ascribe black boys are so lazy, they don't want to do their work, they're Mm. X, Y, and Z, because we've been conditioned to believe Mm. those things about them, Mm. versus something may be wrong with this child, I wonder what happened let me ask a question and see. It's that and deficit lens, It's right? that deficit lens, and oftentimes black and brown children aren't given the benefit of the doubt right. in the way that white children are. Absolutely. So racism will show up in our biases, mm-hmm. and um, if we don't name them and recognize that we all have them, um, then we're going to perpetuate harm. Right. Um, it shows up in our policies. Again, discipline policies. Mm-hmm. It shows up in the ways that we interpret behavior, something that you may some teachers may consider it threatening. I may not. Right. And may think there should be a different consequence, a conversation versus a write-up. And then what we've seen is that um, in discipline policies, black and brown children are overrepresented in in school suspensions and out-of-school suspensions. That's national data, and that's also local data in many of our school districts. Um, And so those are ways. Not anecdotal. It's actual data. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. The disproportionate amount of uh, black and brown students that that are punished through these policies. Yeah. Continue. It, it shows up in our hiring practices. Um, many, uh, we believe, or be as many educators believe that the um, student demographic should be represented in the teaching demographics. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there's a disconnect yeah. when it comes to black and brown children and being able to see role models who look like them as educators. Um, so you will have these predominantly black and brown schools with these predominantly black, I mean, with predominantly white staff. Right. And by and large, white people don't think about race. Um, and that's not an opinion. That's also can be, can be backed up by data. Absolutely. And so 
black and brown children are having these very much racialized experiences in schools that are oftentimes invisible mm -hmm. um, and that are mislabeled and mischaracterized um, from by people who don't necessarily see that that's an experience that they could be having. They don't understand the culture. Mm -mm, they and don't that's, understand that's the culture. apart from the policy. Right. right. And racism serves up in our curriculum. Yeah. Um, we have to name and own that historically uh, the curriculum was created with white children in mind mm -hmm. and that the curriculum is very much Eurocentric. And by that, I mean white culture is centered mm -hmm. and black and brown kids' experiences and cultures and other children of color, indigenous cultures are marginalized mm -hmm. or erased completely. Completely. And what a lot of people don't understand is that communicates value. What is taught is what matters, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, you're, if your culture isn't present at all, you think you don't matter. Or if your culture is overrepresented, you think you matter more. Mm. You think that feeds into white superiority thinking. That narrative. That narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And also feeds into the inferiority of people of color and their contributions mm -hmm. to the world. System. It's a perpetual system. And so if we don't recognize and name that, then as educators, we're just perpetuating white supremacy exactly. in our school systems. And exactly. so we have to make that visible, um, name it, and then work to disrupt our curriculum and make sure that all of our students are represented in diverse ways in the curriculum. Black children shouldn't just be represented um, as victims of slavery and oppression. Mm. Um, American Indian children shouldn't solely be represented as um, victims of colonization. Mm. Like our stories and their stories are more diverse than that. And they, white children get to see multiple representations of themselves and everybody else should have that experience as well. Absolutely. Um, I think that that leads well into this next question. So you mentioned earlier about using literacy-based strategies in your work. Um, what are those strategies that you're using that helps assist in promoting anti-racism in the classroom? And I'm thinking here about um, the disrupt, the hashtag disrupt text movement on Twitter, whether traditional canon of books are questioned and noting that there needs to, needs to be a change that reflects more African-American, Latinx, and LGBT authors and voices. Um, speaking personally in my classroom as a language teacher, I have my own library. Um, that I've, I've purchased several books for. And I try to make them very reflective of the demographics in my classroom, which is predominantly African-American, Latinx, you know. Um, so that's what I can do in my classroom directly to disrupt text, right, and, and the selection that I choose to bring into my classroom so my students are represented. So what, what sort of strategies do you use with these liter literacy-based strategies? So some of the strategies that we use in, in thinking about our, our summer camp curriculum is that we choose uh, texts that center black and brown children's experiences. So we're decentering whiteness and we're centering black and brown children as protagonist characters. Um, we have a goal of reaching 100% culturally authentic text. Mm. And by that we mean that the race and identity of the author corresponds with the race and identity of the characters in the text. Um, we have not reached that yet. Mm. Um, and by that, we, we want that because the voices are more authentic when you're writing from your personalized experiences, right? But you have to think about who's had access historically to be able to publish books, mm. to write them, the finances yes. to do that. And um, for the most part, white people have been able to do that. And mm -hmm. there are some um, white authors who may write texts about people of color and it may distort, use stereotypes, but all of them aren't like that. So we do have some texts that are authored by white people um, representing characters of color in authentic um, 
I guess you could say authentic ways. They're not exaggerated. The the images aren't caricatured. And they're not doing stereotypical things. So we do have some texts that we use in that way. But so first, we're, we're thinking about the text that we choose with intentionality. Right. Um, we also choose texts that help children think about race, racism, activism, skin color in explicit ways. Mm. Um, and so once we identify those texts, now we're developing um, lessons and activities that surround them. So, for example, um, we use the book, uh, My Name is Sungo. And Sungo is about um, a child from Sudan who's a refugee, and he's fleeing Sudan to come to America. So when he comes to America um, and goes into our school systems, everyone mispronounces his name. Because Mm. if you look at it on paper, it looks like San Goel. And um, in the text, it really emphasizes the importance of learning people's names and pronouncing them correctly. Mm-hmm. He goes through and people are picking on his name. They're calling him Sang Sang. They're struggling to say it. And he mm-hmm. gets fed up. Mm-hmm. And so he goes home. He creates a T-shirt. He draws a sun, he paints a sun and then like a soccer goal. Mm-hmm. And he goes back to school and he's like, my name is Sun goal. (laughs) And, um, and so one of the activities that we do is we have the students create their own t-shirts to teach each other how to say their name correctly. That's an amazing idea. And so now they teach each other that, and we talk about the importance of learning other people's names and taking the time to do that. And another follow-up activity that we do on that day is we have a role play. And so we've written out these scenarios. We have a partner A and a partner B and like, so for example, one of them is partner A um, calls uh, partner B something that's not their name. And partner B replies, my name is Rhonda and that's what you should call me. So now the kids role play that so they get to practice right. it, right? Then we have I another like one, another one of the scenarios is when um, partner A says, you know what, your name is too hard to pronounce. I'm going to call you Ron. Mm. So then partner B's response is, my name isn't hard to pronounce. It's hard for you to pronounce and I will help you say it correctly. And so in doing that, there's a shift in the deficit. The deficit is no longer on that child, their family, their culture, um, their language, and also because their name isn't hard to pronounce. Mama can say it, dad can say it, grandma and grandpa can say it. Exactly. It's hard for us and we have to own that. Right. And so we've recently added- Work on it. Right. We've recently added a follow-up to that because we all make mistakes and we, um, partner A says, my apologies, thank you for correcting me. Because we're all going to make mistakes, exactly. right? And then there's ways to reconcile, own that you've messed up, and then do better the next time. And so that helps. We have the children practice that. They switch roles so that they can learn to apologize when they've messed up, if they're the perpetrator. And then they learn to advocate for themselves if that's been their experience. And your kids love that, right? They love oh, doing they that love activity. It. They do love it. And it's good. And we get a lot of um, feedback from parents who come home, especially for children who that story resonates with them because that's their experience. Right, right. Their parents come back and share that story. And like, my daughter said this, and my son came home and, and felt validated, one. Well, that's <laughs> Seeing that important. text where that's that's their similar story. Right. And now they have a way when their teacher or their or colleague or friend mispronounces their name, makes fun of them, and in a way that's not a call-out culture, but call-in, right? Right, right? And so now they have a, they're armed <laughs> and to be beautiful. prepared and go forward. So that's just one of the, the activities that we... Well, that's do a, around a text. That's a beautiful activity. Thank I like you. that. It's I think I think at the basic level, just understanding and respecting um, someone else and and knowing how to say their name mm-hmm. if they are. And that's connected know. to historical racism, right? Exactly. The renaming of people. So maybe we, we don't go that deep into the history with the kids because right. we do that with the first through second graders and the third through fifth grade. But we use a different text for the older children. Um, 
But that's that's racism. Now we do that on day one. We're building up. Like we don't go in the first day just talking about racism off the bat. We're kind right. of building up. So we start with the individual and the identity, mm-hmm. um, and people's names, which is a very common space. And then we build up to having that explicit conversation by day three um, about racism. But it's accessible. It's connected to that history, and um, and we still do that today. Black and brown children or children with names that are unique. Are they being renamed? They're being picked on by authority figures, right? Not they just are. classmates, mm-hmm. but by authority figures, so and that's adult harmful. bullying. Yes, <laughs> it really is. It I is. see that where I'm at with especially um, the lat- Latino and Latina mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they they oftentimes not to me, but to other educators have, and I'm doing air quotes, difficult names, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll mm-hmm. they'll um, they'll just change the student's name or try to abbreviate it in some way. And I think that's othering that child and, and not acknowledging what they're bringing to the table, just even with their name, right? right. So I try, to, I try to myself, I take it upon myself as a language teacher to try to like tell teachers, no, you have to acknowledge and respect their name. If you need to know how to say it, ask me. Send me an email, call me, mm-hmm. um, and I'll, I'll work with you on, on pronunciation. Or better yet, ask your student. <laughs> how to pronounce their name, right? right. But if you, if you have fear, you can ask me how to say their name, right? And I'll right. help you. And we um, as educators have to zoom out and recognize that that is connected to racism, right? And so we're perpetuating is. and holding up this idea of otherizing. Right. And so um, many people, I think some people who do that would struggle to identify in that way. Um, but no, what's yeah, the, it's it harmless. Is. What's the problem? I just call him Jay. Right. I mean, what's you harmless know, for them, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, harmless for them, exactly. And I, I just find that like, Probably it's really devastating. You can see it in the kids when they don't, yeah. and they talk about it. You they know, do. If, I have a, <laughs> one of our camp counselors this summer. When she's an adult, still resonating with what, how her name was, how her teacher renamed her, and that became her name. Oh my goodness! Through elementary school. Wow. Because and she didn't it, feel it existed beyond that one grade. That yep. one grade. And and she narrated that story uh, for us, and. Um, you know, she's still wrestling with that as an adult. Yeah. So, so these are it's, lifelong. It's powerful. Yeah. It's, the damages are real. Mm-hmm. People, people internalize those things and we just don't know. You mm-hmm. don't know the impact you're having if you don't know. Right. Especially if you're not, if you're not paying attention and bringing that intentionality to the space. Right. And you're, you're starting with the youth, the, mm-hmm. the little kitties. Mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful. So, um, you mentioned working with, uh, Earlier when I introduced you, you mentioned working with white children's racial identity, and it led me to think about the work of uh, deconstructing that white lens and how the privileges white people have are so deeply embedded in our psyches and how we oftentimes cannot even see, as we've mentioned, the systems of privilege that we operate in, that we operate in, excuse me. What does this work look like for you when you work with children, and and how do they go about constructing their identities, that white construction of identity? Um, so in doing that work with children, we have to be thoughtful about the ways in which um, our environments are communicating beliefs about whiteness. And so we know that that happens through text. We know that that happens through representation of who's up in front of the children leading the exercises. Um, so and some of the things that we think about, we think about like the racial composition of our staff. We try to be very intentional about, we use a co-teacher model. 
And so we try to be very intentional about having a two to one ratio, two educators of color to one white educator mm-hmm. um, in classrooms. So we normally have about three, cl- three educators in a classroom. And so we think about that representation. What does it look like to have two educators of color and then one white person? And oftentimes we are very intentional about when that white teacher is leading and that white teacher does will lead lessons throughout the week, but they may not go first. Right? Right, right. And so we're trying to disrupt what children understand is who, who get to, who gets to be in charge, right? Who's taking the leadership role. And we adopt a mindset of how do our um, white co-facilitators and co-planners lead from the back? And right. what does that look? So that even that visual representation. And so we think about the text that we choose. Um, white characters are not the protagonist. Right. So even that representation, being exposed to a text where um, white children are not centered mm-hmm. and that um, those are ways to kind of help give them, help them to understand uh, that there are books about other people that and about differences and that you can appreciate and learn from. And that's the book that's being taught, not during Black History Month. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Um, so we're just doing subtle things and paying attention to thinking about grouping how we group children. I think we got some feedback uh, from a parent this summer in our third through fifth grade camp because it was heavily black and black children were the dominant group in the third through fifth grade camp. And one parent shared, um, I think their child had verbalized what it was like not being in the majority in their group. Mm. Um, a white child uh, verbalized that to a parent, a parent shared that and talk, she talked about the parent kind of shared about what that meant for their child and how they're talking through. What is it, what is it like to be in a classroom and you're not, everyone in there doesn't look like you. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking about pairings and groupings in ways um, that are, are very intentional. So we're doing these subtle things. And then sometimes we're doing overt things such as uh, we caucus with children. Okay. And by caucusing, I mean, we have and another term that people like to use is affinity groups. Uh-huh. But by caucusing, we have um, a people of color caucus and then we have a caucus for people who identify as white, for children right. who identify as white. I mean, it's messy. That's a binary, right? Our, we are all more diverse than two categories. And right, then once right. you get in those categories, there's so much more diversity in that. Exactly. Um, but we talk about the need for having these spaces that are separate. Um, for adults, we use the language of, of the white gaze. Right. Um, with children, we don't use that language for the white gays because that's not something they're going to understand. Right, we talk right. about creating these safe spaces <laughs> right. with people who have similar racial backgrounds. Right. And so we create a, a space for white children to go where the white co-facilitators go and they sit amongst themselves and they talk about race and skin color. And what does it mean um, to think about ourselves as white? And then they go, they, we um, have done it where we've created some scenarios of things that the children may have seen, or they may have perpetuated themselves and help children think of white children specifically think about how can you be um, an advocate if you see this scenario happening? And so they'll go through them and talk about, hey, some of the, the scenarios come from things that children have shared in the camp. So we try to make them as realistic as possible. Right. We're listening to their voices. We're jotting down these stories uh-huh. um, and with these scenarios. And now the white children are thinking about how can I be a disruptor? And some of them have stories where they're like, either I've done this or I've seen this happen. And so now they know next time this is a way that I can show up and advocate for the people who are being the target um, of discrimination. And so those are other ways that we're thinking about creating those spaces where they're safe because they also don't have to perform for the black and brown children right. or be as um, thoughtful in those spaces or, or, or not. But then in those spaces amongst themselves, 
having that conversation with a teacher who looks like them and then going through these scenarios about, hey, these are things that we witness at this age and these are things that we can do to be disruptors and advocates mm-hmm. and um, allies. And um, so equipping them with the tools to be thoughtful about that and take that back into their school settings. Right. That's that's fascinating. Are you are you ever amazed at some of the things that uh, young white kids say that they, if you said things they've seen or things they've done? Are you ever like taken aback or shocked at, at some of the things that these uh, white kids have in their groups? Um, I would say for me, because for one, I'm not in there. And so I get right. the stories that are told for me as we're right. debriefing and going over conversations. There's not a lot that surprises me. Right. Well, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Just because I've been paying attention for a you've while been paying, you, and, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and doing it and studying it. But I'm, I guess I, that was the I wrong would say way to fascinated. Question. I am fascinated. Yes. Um, are some of the white uh leaders of these groups, are they taken aback at some of the things that they see? They perhaps have been doing this work also themselves, recognizing their bias as a white educator. Um, are they are they oftentimes maybe taken aback at some of the things they hear? I'm just trying to get an idea. Yeah. Like that's a fascinating idea of getting these these groups of white children together and, mm-hmm. and exposing that, breaking that, deconstructing that lens as we've been talking about. I think sometimes we get, um, we're, we're intrigued by um, some of the stories that they share, right? And so, or some of the things that they might do. So, for example, um, let me think back. So we've had a white child say, and, and this, to me, this is age appropriate, and we understand why they would say something like this. I'm glad I'm not black. Uh. So if you're sitting in a space and you're learning about racism and you're learning about things that are happening to black and brown people um, based on the color of their skin, mm-hmm. it makes sense for a white child to be like, whew, I'm glad I'm not black because I'm learning these things and that means that's not going to happen to me, right? Right. But at the same time, some instruction has to happen there. Right. right? That's, you can unpack that. To unpack that. And then when we've heard comments like that or some, that might have been in a general setting, We've heard it in the general setting with mixed race, with they're together, and we've also heard that in the caucus. And so those are teachable moments. Well, let's humanize that experience and mm-hmm. let's think about what's happening to people who who are the targets of that racism and how saying a comment like that could be harmful. Right. And then what are other ways that we can think about their experience, right, and, and demonstrate empathy um, and just humanizing that understand, helping them to better understand how that could be harmful to right. say. Right. And so those are those are things um, that we pay attention to and are on alert about. Um, so they're learning that privilege from a, like it. That's where it starts. Right. Like you see the importance of working at such a young age and to then dismantle they, this system. And then because they recognize that that is a privilege that I am not because these things are not going to happen. Glad to me that's based not on my me. Skin color. Right. How many adults probably say that? <laughs> right. Mm. So let's name this as a privilege. Mm hmm. Right. Because that's language that we use during the camp, too. And then and then let's talk about how maybe we can, because that's not happening to you, how you can show up and be an advocate and activist mm-hmm. when you're seeing things, when you recognize that black and brown children are being mistreated because of the color of their skin. Right. Right. So those are the kind of things that we're, we're we listen out for and try to um, try to pay attention to. Amazing. That's amazing work. So as we close here, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Um, you're doing a fundraising campaign for We Are. Um, could you explain a bit about that and what what that looks like? What are you doing? 
Yeah, so every summer we um, try to raise funds to help cover the cost of providing scholarships for children to attend our camp. Mm -hmm. So camp isn't free, and that's one of the ways where we've been able to, to stay around, you know, that right. there is a charge with it. And so um, there is a camp fee. It costs $300 for um, a child to attend our camp, although the actual cost is higher than that. Right. We've capped the price at 300 and a lot of families can't afford that. Yes. A lot of working families can't afford that. And so um, what we want, we do not want that number to be a financial barrier for people. Exactly. So we provide full and partial scholarships for families who ask. We also provide transportation for them awesome. to and from the camp. And so we have to raise the money to cover that cost. Exactly. And so um, right now we have a fundraiser through Facebook and um, people can find that at uh, www.facebook.com forward slash we are dot nc dot org and so we're um, collecting funds now to help us cover the cost of scholarships so that there are no financial barriers preventing families from um from Ten. signing up and exactly. attending that's a beautiful thing um you've heard it here so go to facebook we are or go to we are dot com or dot org it's, dot it's org are, not dot com right it's we are dash nc dot org that is our website we you are can find more. dash nc dot org find more information about us follow us on twitter and on instagram at, at we are underscore org awesome well i want to thank you for being on the program today thank you for having me all right and you're listening to what in the world language podcast